Ephesians chapter 4 this evening. Uh, This is part two because we only made it through two of the fivefold giftings in Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to pray for us and um, actually let me read this first and then I'll pray. The Bible says in verse 1, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood or womanhood. He's talking about spiritual maturity to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful tonight to be gathered as your children, your sons and daughters. God, to be gathered as the family of God. Father, we're so thankful tonight that you granted us a a divine appointment, God. You granted us uh, an intersection in our lives where the supernatural met the natural. God, where you revived us in our spirit and we became spiritual beings born again by your Holy Spirit. God, equipped and enabled to commune with you and and to fellowship with you, God, to hear you, to be embraced by you, God, to dwell in your holy presence. Father, thank you. God, thank you. We are so grateful tonight. And we confess, God, that sometimes our thinking and our doing, our living falls so short of what you've intended for us, but here we are. Speak to us, we pray. God, cause your word and your spirit to deeply penetrate our hearts, that you would do a new work. God, we long for a book of Acts experience in the church today. 
and we're hungry for it, God. We're hungry because you've created a, a desire, a deep desire within our hearts. And so, Father, we pray that you would feed us with your scriptures and that you would lead us in a way where we would see in our lives and our families and our friends and our church just a radical move of your Holy Spirit. God, like a rushing, mighty wind, we pray that you would blow through this place and through our lives and that you would create a sustaining work, God, that would impact the nations with the love of Jesus. We love you, Father, so much in Jesus' name. Amen. Christianity is inescapably supernatural. It is inescapably supernatural, and you don't have to look any further than the physical universe, which, by the way, is a product of a supernatural metaphysical cause. I know that sounded like a lot to start with today, but I just want us to get our mind around the reality that we're not dealing with, with natural things. You know, when we talk about the Christian faith, we're talking about the metaphysical meeting the physical. We look at the physical world and we know through the Word of God and through the enlightening work of God's Holy Spirit in our lives that, that the physical world is the product, it's the byproduct of the supernatural work of God, the power of God. And through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have entered into that supernatural world. Um, or maybe put a different way, the supernatural world has entered into us. We have, we have been touched by, we've been transformed by, we've been changed by the metaphysical. And I don't mean metaphysical in a non-personal sense. I'm not talking about a, a transcendent being that is non-personal and disconnected from humanity. No, I'm talking about a, a personal, a very personal God who absolutely does transcend the physical world, but encompasses all of the physical world simultaneously. You know, the supernatural has come to dwell within us, not in a fanatical way, not in a theatrical way, not in an excessive way, but the metaphysical, like I said, has merged with the natural. And I think the spiritual gifts that God has given are a beautiful expression of that merging. The spiritual gifts of God, remember when we talk about spiritual gifts, we're not talking about innate talents. You know, there are people that are just born with amazing innate skills. And sometimes, you know, there's a legacy piece in that, right? There's the legacy framework of our lives and somehow genetically it's beyond us Things get handed down. We're not talking about that. We're not talking about learned skills or learned abilities. Sometimes people say, uh, maybe an artist or maybe a musician, man, that person, they're so gifted. There's no doubt, an athlete. They are gifted, for sure. You might have a, a physician, you know, and she's just amazing at her craft. I mean, everyone wants to go to her because her hands are skilled. Um, while we would say, yeah, there's a gifting there, that's not the same as a spiritual gift. A spiritual gift is imparted by the Holy Spirit, generally at the moment of salvation. But then remember, we also talked about those gifts that come upon our lives, believers in Jesus Christ, that are on occasion and by circumstance. These gifts, these five gifts, 
These spiritual gifts are cultivated or incubated in a supernatural culture. So remember, when we're talking about the gifts of Ephesians chapter 4, we're talking about apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, teacher. That's not a comprehensive list of gifts. Maybe this is all brand new to you. Um, Remember also, and we'll get to these gifts, there's Romans chapter 12 that lays out service gifts. You know, some people have different ways of categorizing or framing uh, or titling these gifts. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 12 in two different places lays out a series of other gifts. And so there, when you get down to the nitty-gritty and you're counting the gifts that are mentioned in the New Testament, most people land on uh, 23 various gifts. And I'll tell you right now, lots of difference of opinion on that. As we work our way methodically through the gifts, we're going to be focused on 23. These gifts, these five gifts, are laid out by the Apostle Paul. And, you know, as he's laying them out, we did talk about this, so it's just by way of reminder, Paul is talking about this supernatural uh, cult culture that these gifts and the product of these gifts are cultivated or incubated in. You remember, we talked about humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another in love. Um, And then Paul talked about eagerly maintaining the unity of the faith. And so there, there is, and by the way, those things don't come naturally either. Let me just ask. Uh, humility come naturally for anybody? Just raise your hand. No, I didn't, I didn't think so. I know some of you, and so I was like, no, definitely not. Don't raise your hand. Um, maybe some of us are inclined towards gentleness. How about patience? Anybody like you just, you, you're just born with patience. You're the most patient person on the face of planet Earth, and patience comes easy to you. Let me see who you are, because I need your help, all right? I just... I just need your help. Bearing with one another in love. And I'm not talking about just like bearing in love uh, with those that you like or those who are similar to you, those who have similar likes. I'm talking about the body of Christ, the church of the living God, which is as diverse as you possibly can get. And sometimes also, at the same time, very annoying. Because, you know, we're just all people with opinions and we bring our own sinful nature in. I, I think you understand what I'm saying here. Paul is laying out a culture that is supernatural in nature. Like these things don't come naturally, but if the church is going to grow the way God wants the church to grow, this is the soil, right? This is the soil of our interpersonal relationships that has to be being cultivated. Otherwise, everything that God has intended will be thwarted. Right? I mean, you could flip this around and you could talk about the antithesis of these things, which would be pride and arrogance and bullying or abusiveness or, you know, and the list, division, all of those things are, are, this is not a word, but quenchers of the Holy Spirit. Apes, remember, we're talking about gifted people. It is a unique word. It's doma in the Greek. Uh, We're talking about people who are specifically, uniquely gifted by God to equip God's people, to build up God's people, to fire up the people of God, to engage their spiritual gifts in such a way that they're using them to edify and equip other people in the church. The local church is the forge where God hammers out and casts His dream. 
And so there are these five gifts. Now, sometimes these gifted individuals emerge as leaders, and that for sure is more often than not. Sometimes they are publicly appointed to offices within the church to lead the church in the life and the ministry of the local congregation. And so they'll have uh, positions that have been established and that have been conveyed in a public sense, but that's not always the case. And I think sometimes this is where, this is where we can get it wrong uh, because we're typically, and I talked about you know, one thing for sure that we need to dismantle is the dualism that happens in the modern church today, particularly in the West, where you have on the one hand, um, you have on the one hand professionals, and then on the other hand, you have laypersons, and then you have everybody else, right? You've got the paid ministers, you've got the unpaid ministers, and then you've got everyone else who feels unnecessary, and that it was never the vision of God for His people, the vision of God for his people was that everyone was necessary. Everyone had purpose. Everyone has a gift, right? In fact, this is how the Apostle Paul wraps up this session. He says, from whom, verse 16, the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, when each part is working properly, in other words, when every individual that is part of a local body of believers is actually engaged in using their spiritual gift, well, that's when the body grows and it builds itself up in love. And so that will never happen if we have this dualism happening, which is professional ministers, that are the ones who are really gifted and are the ones who are doing all of the work. No, that's not the way that God intended it. God intended there to be, for sure, leaders who are used by God to equip every saint in the church for the ministry that God has appointed each individual to. Now, sometimes I talked about this, you know, when we're shaping our teams, we're strategic about placing people with these various or diverse gifts on teams. For instance, when um, I'm working on developing our senior leader team, you know, we for sure want people who are apostolically gifted, prophetically gifted, evangelistically gifted, gifted as shepherds and gifted as teachers because that's when a leadership team is robust. The last thing you want is all apostles. The last thing that you want is all evangelists, right? I mean, there's got to be the diversity of gifts. But it, it, that being said, these gifts are also scattered throughout the congregation, more often than not in a non-official capacity. So when these five gifts, are you guys with me tonight? When these five gifts are operating, what happens is what you will see, right? Remember, the church is the laboratory that the things of God are worked out in. We're not just consumers. We're not coming and just taking in and then leaving on our merry way, you know, with a little word for ourselves. No, this is like a lab. This is a forge. God is hammering things out. This is where we get to experiment with our spiritual gifts in a very safe place and discover the gifts that God has for us. And I think that that's the context that God desires for us to discover our gifts in. There's an apostolic genius to this because these robust gifts advance the church and the kingdom in a forward sense, in a healthy way that glorifies God. I shared this on Sunday, 
uh, just with, with respect, this is kind of a snippet of these five gifts, and uh, we're going to unpack three of them a little more f- fully this evening, but we need apostles because we need to be pushed out of our comfort zone to relentlessly expand the kingdom of God beyond our four walls. We need prophets because we need to discern culture and covenant and have an awareness of sin and be exhorted to live out our faith in the culture that God's placed us. We need the evangelist because people need to be saved and they need to be continually exposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The church needs shepherds because people need guidance and care. They need to be compelled continually to live in community. And people, obviously, we need teachers because we need to know the truth of God and how it applies to our lives. Last week, we looked at apostles and prophets. We discussed how um, there is a once and for all sense of that apostolic and prophetic gifting that laid the foundation of the church and really was a, a, a way of being gifted that ended in that first century. So today, by that I simply mean this, today there are not apostles and prophets like there were in the New Testament church. In other words, no one today can say that they are qualified to pin the inspired Word of God. No one has the ability or the calling or the gifting of God to add to the canon of Scripture. You know, the Word of God was written once and for all and delivered to the people of God. So in that sense, There is uh, an aspect of the apostolic prophetic gifting that was once and for all. Then at the same time, we see that there is an aspect of these gifts that are for today. We talked a little bit about that last week. Tonight, we're going to talk about the evangelist, the shepherd. And you'll notice here, um, with the way it's presented in the English Standard Version, Uh, The scripture says, the shepherds and teachers. And so before the word teacher, that definite article is missing, and I'll tell you why in just a minute. We've all been commissioned to fulfill the Great Commission. Can someone say amen Amen. nice and loud to that, right? We've all been commissioned. I've heard people say before, they've kind of excused themselves from doing the work of an evangelist, from sharing the gospel, and they'll say something like this, well, I'm not an evangelist. I'm not an evangelist, and so that's not really my job. That's for, that's for the evangelist. And my response to that is this. We've all been commissioned to go into the world and make disciples of all nations. Like, that's, that's, not, a, that's not something that was just for a select few, you know, or some particularly gifted people. That was not just an apostolic commission for those that Jesus was speaking to at the time. That is, that calling is for all of us. And so when we talk about the evangelist, remember, even though we may not be gifted in that way with that particular calling, all of us, and in our own unique way, let me just say this. This is the beauty of the work of God's Holy Spirit in our lives. As we're fulfilling the Great Commission, God uniquely, he or, let me just say it like this, he uses our uniquenesses to fulfill the Great Commission in really special ways. I mean, at the end of the day, we all share the same gospel, and we're all conveying the same message, 
but how we end up sharing and ministering to the people that God places in front of us, well, man, there are so many different ways and creative ways to do that. We're all called to do that. In fact, Timothy, probably uh, an individual who was not an evangelist, Paul said to him, Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. Do the work of an evangelist. Yeah, you're a, you're a shepherd teacher. You're overseeing a big church, the church of Ephesus. But don't forget, it's not just about care and compassion and compelling people to community. It's not just about interpretation and instruction and laying out the three points, you know, when you're giving your message. No, there, you still need to be a fisher of men and women, right? Because that's what Jesus said to his disciples, Come and follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. We are always after seeing souls brought into the kingdom of God. This particular gift, the evangelist, has a harvesting gift. This, this particular gift is a harvesting gift. I'm saying to you, people just get saved. They just get saved. The person who has this gift, like they sneeze and people get born again. It, I mean, it's just like that. You know, I mean, some of us, man, we work hard and we're, we're plowing the furrow and we're planting seed, you know, and it's just like we're, we're so exhausted because of all the evangelistic investment. And then this bum comes along, don't get me wrong. And, you know, it's like a, it's like a word. They just say a word and, and the soul's harvested into the kingdom of God. It's a beautiful thing. It's an absolutely beautiful thing to see. Philip, I think, in the New Testament, you remember Philip, this was his trajectory. He was part of the congregation. He was part of the congregation. Then he was selected because, remember, there was an issue in the church. There was some division. Imagine that. Shocker. You're like, man, no, the early church was perfect. No, the early church was not. It struggled with some drama as well. Not that we ever experienced drama here at Awaken Las Vegas. But there was, some, there was some drama. There was some drama back then, right? And so the disciples, the apostles were like, hey, you guys need to, you need to select people full of wisdom, full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit. Not full of it, not full of the world, not full of nonsense, not full of chaos, not full of drama. But, you know, survey from among yourselves. Survey, I love this because it's like, hey, everyone's got a calling. Everyone's got a gift. Identify those people, right, that, are, that meet those qualifications. I don't mean to get off on a rabbit trail tonight, but, but you know, he didn't say, uh, hey, make sure that you get the degreed people. He didn't say, check, ch check their academic credentials, right? He, he, didn't, he, didn't, he didn't say, hey, you know what, get some references um, from the, the secular world because we need to see how they can perform in a professional capacity. I'm not saying that there's not a place for that. But their criteria here is really amazing because I think the criteria that's laid out here is something we all as Christians should be able to fulfill. Full of faith, full of wisdom, full of the Holy Spirit. And so, you know, he's brought into this opportunity. He's a waiter. He's waiting tables. That's what he's doing. He's, he's, he's part of the congregation. Now he is waiting on tables. And, you know, there's this beautiful, dynamic gift that God has given to him as an evangelist. And when, you know, when it gets crazy in Jerusalem and there's persecution, Philip makes his way to Samaria. And as he's preaching the gospel, there's a total revival in Samaria. Just a radical revival in Samaria. 
And then, you know, in the middle of the revival, because he's an evangelist and he's sneezing and people are getting saved and craziness is happening. And God's like, you know, God says, Philip, I want you to head down to the desert. And um, once you get there, I'll give you the next step. He toodles his way down to the desert. And as he's hanging there, there's an Ethiopian eunuch um, that's just been worshiping, you know, he's a, a chief person in the court of Candace, the queen of Ethiopia. He's been worshiping in Jerusalem. He's a God-fearing individual, maybe a proselyte to Judaism. He's cruising on his chariot back to Ethiopia, and the Spirit of God says, go run and catch up to that guy. And so, you know, he's running. Thank God he was in shape, right? I mean, he was, had been doing his Pilates and his regular 5K running. So, he was in shape to catch up to the chariot. He's running alongside the chariot. And he's like, dude, what are you reading? And the Ethiopian eunuch's like, man, he's got the scroll open, Isaiah 53. He's like, how can I understand this unless someone explains it to me? And so he hops into, he hops into his car. You know, he hops into his ride. He explains Isaiah 53. And the Ethiopian eunuch gives his life to Christ is water baptized, and then church history tells us goes back to Ethiopia, and the church is birthed in Ethiopia through Philip's ministry to that guy. That's, that's the gift of evangelism. That's the gift of evangelism. And that is, and I, I just want you to think about it, that is having a heart to see people saved so much that you will do absolutely anything you know, obviously, big names pop to mind. We think of Billy Graham or we think of Greg Laurie. Um, but I think, of, I think of Chija Yoon in our own church. I mean, Chija is an evangelist. I wish she was here right now to hear me talk her up. But, man, that woman is an evangelist. You know, every week she's over at Durango and kids are coming out and, it, and it's chaos, right? Sometimes she's suffering persecution. They're throwing stuff at her and throwing stuff in her hair and, and she's just steadfast and she's faithful and she's sharing the gospel and, and students are giving their life to Christ. I think about Jonay. Some of you remember our brother Jonay who just went to be with the Lord in January. Jonay was an evangelist. I mean, the guy was always sharing the gospel. I think about the kingdom-minded crew, that has just been birthed, this ministry where we have men and women in our church and from other churches who are just out in the streets, they're doing events, they're burdened to see people saved. The evangelist is someone who recruits and gathers. It's a special gifting to usher souls into the kingdom of God. Evangelists communicate the message of the good news in joyous, infectious ways. They're avid communicators of ideas and often share their thoughts and feelings in convincing ways. They call for personal response to God's redemption in Christ and also draw believers to engage in the wider mission growing the church. As people who are bearers of good news, they have an attractional quality to their ministry. Like I said, they are burdened for the lost. Every conversation with the evangelist ends up at the gospel. You know, they can, be, they can lead a rock to Christ. You know, it doesn't matter who they're talking to. But the conversation ultimately and always ends up getting to the gospel. I mean, I had friends, I've had friends over the years who were able to leverage every single situation, circumstance, the most obscure thing 
they would be able to take an obscure thing and shape it in a way where it led the conversation to the gospel of Jesus Christ. These people are filled with an endless supply of creative ways of bringing people to Jesus. I mean, it is a constant, it is a constant supply of ideas, and there's no turning that faucet off. With respect to the culture war, they're more interested in saving the loss and winning the argument. Evangelists sometimes have weaknesses too. Sometimes they can be so enthusiastic and driven that they can be unwise in their decision-making. They can be very excessive in risk-taking when that's directed and led by God. It's a beautiful thing. When it's a function of the flesh, it can end in disaster. They have tendencies to exaggerate in order to have people engage with them. Sometimes they are, um, they, they are evangelists, but sometimes they're evangelistic. They're evangelistic in the way that they say things. Sometimes 10 people getting saved is 10,000 people get, getting saved. Um, they tend to be poor listeners, uh, and they practice selective hearing. They can be easily discouraged when things are difficult and no longer exciting. The shepherd, the two that are left now are the shepherd and the teacher, it's possible that the final two are actually connected together. In fact, some people, when you talk about these giftings, they will tie shepherd and teacher together. They'll say shepherd teacher or pastor teacher. If you have the New King James Version, um, your translation says pastor, and I think the order's reversed. But some people believe these final two uh, gifts are actually, you know, woven together. I don't think that that's necessarily the case. Um, I do think that the shepherd has to have the capacity to be able to teach because that was a qualification in 1 Timothy chapter 3. I don't think that the teacher is always a shepherd, though. The word shepherd um, in the original language is poimen. And I say that to say this. There are three words in your English translation that um, some people believe are interchangeable. The word elder, the word bishop or overseer, and the word pastor or shepherd here in the English Standard Version. Uh, Presbyteros, episkopos, and poimen. I'm not normally uh, a person that likes to Greek you guys up, but I think it's important to recognize there are three different terms that are used. Most people say that these three different terms and titles are used interchangeably. So, they, so some people would say they all really mean the same thing. Uh, in fact, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, Peter's laying out some instruction for individuals who are um, either operating in the official capacity as an elder um, or, you know, are just serving in a non-official capacity. But interestingly enough, he uses all three of these terms to refer to the same people. He says, so I exhort the elders among you, that's presbyteros, as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed, shepherd, that is poimen, the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And the word episkopos is exercising 
oversight. So um, if you're going to make the argument that all of these words or titles or positions, you know, of leadership in the church are interchangeable, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 to 3 is a great place to make your argument. Qualifications are clear. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, and Titus chapter 1, verses 5 to 9, lay out the qualification of someone serving as an elder or an overseer or a pastor. In fact, this was the exhortation that Paul gave to Timothy and to Titus in what is called the pastoral epistles. They're called pastoral epistles because Paul was writing to individuals who were pastoring churches. And so in pastoring the church, what Paul said to Timothy and Titus, Titus was overseeing all of the Christian churches on the island of Crete, and Timothy was pastoring at that time the church in Ephesus, which was a, a big church, um, a big congregation of God's people. Remember, in the early church, when we say church, we're not talking about a building because there were no buildings that they gathered in. So Paul is instructing these leaders, hey, what you need to do, this is what needs to happen. You need to establish good, godly leadership in the church. You need to establish a plurality of elders. And I'm not going to really get into governance tonight, you know, whether we're talking about one elder overseeing many elders or um, elders who are all technically the same overseeing a church together or we're talking about a congregationally led governance model because there are those three types of different governance models for churches. Paul is, and we can argue about that later, which one's right and which one's not right, or which one's appropriate and which one's not appropriate. Paul is just saying, hey, to lead the church, you need to establish elders. And so he lays out the qualifications. You're familiar with that. Paul's like, hey, if anyone desires the position of an elder, he desires a good work. And then he just starts going through the list. This is what you need to be looking for, right? Because you want qualified people. You want people who are respected, not just within the body of Christ, but who have a good reputation outside of the body of Christ. You want someone who's faithful in the family, because if a person can't manage their own family, how are they going to be caring for the house of the living God? So the Apostle Paul lays out really solid guidelines. Um, now, let me just say this. There are those who think that the role of an elder is different than the role of a bishop, an overseer, or a pastor and a shepherd that there is, for that particular role, a greater emphasis on leading and oversight. And they reference oftentimes 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, where Paul says this. He says, Let the elders who rule well be considered, of wor be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So they, two things are said here. One is that, well, see, you know, elders really do have a unique role of having an authority over the people of God to guide and direct them in the life and the ministry of the congregation. Um, so there's one argument there. Another argument is that there's also even a diversity among eldership because Paul says, you know, there are some clearly who do teach and preach and there are some who do not teach and preach. So it seems like there might be some uniquenesses to the, to the eldership. In addition to that, when you get to the word episkopos or bishop, there seem to be some uniquenesses with that word as well. 
And the ecclesiology, I don't mean to be complicated tonight, but I want you at least to have an understanding of how these things work in the local church. The ecclesiology of these things and how they are applied in the local church setting, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of latitude for each local church to kind of work this out the way that it needs to work it out. For instance, some people take the role of bishop and say that's not really a role that's over one local body of believers. That particular role seems to be over a multitude of churches or maybe even um, regional oversight of churches. And then there are some who look at the uh, role of a pastor or shepherd poiming there and you know it's not necessarily talking about regional leadership it's not necessarily talking about authority in a local church it might be focused more on soul care less than governance i say all that tonight just to totally confuse you okay i just want to do that just for fun it, mission accomplished okay great i'm just i'm just checking look the the point is this where do i fall I think that there is an argument to be made that really these, these are interchangeable words and that there is the freedom in any local church to arrange these roles as it's best for the context of the local church. These are things that we don't argue over because they're not necessarily gospel issues. What we do know is that of all of these five APES gifts, this is the one designated to have an official capacity within the local church to lead in life and ministry of the congregation. So you, I'm saying this, you don't see Paul saying, hey, anyone who desires the position of an apostle... You know, these are the qualifications, and this is the oversight in the local church setting. He doesn't say that for apostle. He doesn't say it for prophet. He doesn't say it for evangelist. Um, and then he doesn't necessarily say it for teacher unless you believe that these final two gifts are actually connected together. Um, this is why pastors or elders or bishops, you know, some of you may come from a more Pentecostal background, and so the word bishop is common for you. You called your pastor bishop. You know, that's just the way that it worked. Well, this is the one gift, this, this is the one gifted individual that, and by that I'm, I'm not talking about just one person, there's a plurality of leadership, um, but this is the particular gift that has been selected by God to lead a church in life and ministry. So, the shepherd is one who protects and provides, a caregiver of the community. They focus on the protection and spiritual maturity of God's flock, cultivating a loving and spiritually mature network of relationships, making and developing disciples, protecting the community from error and division. They ensure, this is why it's important for people in leadership to be able to stand in the gap and say, hey, listen, division is harmful to the body of Christ, and so we need to stop that out. They ensure the community is experienced as a safe and loving environment, giving their ministry a distinctly communal focus. They have a sense of loyalty to the organization and the people within it. Um, shepherds, a shepherd's weakness or immaturity can be this. They can value stability to the detriment of the mission, they may also foster an unhealthy dependence between the church and themselves. They are so attuned to pain that they can be overwhelmed by their own pain and problems. They can be so sensitive to the feelings of people that they can be guided by the fear of offending. Uh, they are slow to act oftentimes because they become anxious about all the possible negative outcomes. So a shepherd for sure has to have the ability to teach, but this final gift, the teacher, 
um, doesn't necessarily have to have the capacity to shepherd. You say, well, what is a teacher? A teacher has a supernatural ability to interpret and explain God's word to God's people. There's just a supernatural ability to be able to connect with the people of God in a way where you're interpreting Scripture, rightly dividing the word of truth, and then conveying it in a way where the people of God understand and grow. Now, this teaching gift oftentimes is connected to the other gifts because you can have an apostle that also has the capacity to teach. You can have someone who is a prophet or an evangelist or a shepherd who also has the capacity to teach. But sometimes, sometimes there is the teacher, you know, and I used to like resist this way of phrasing it, but I've come to learn over the course of time that it's true. There are people who are just pure teachers. They're just pure teachers of the word of God. You know, you can just see there's a dynamic gifting of God upon this man or woman. There's a supernatural ability, right? When they're interpreting the scripture, and I'm not saying like they're just like stepping beyond what the scripture simply says, but you know, you're listening to this person teach and you're like, man, I would have never, I would have never got that. I mean, there's insight, powerful, deep insight. And when you hear it, something happens within you. Like there is a switch that's flicked. There is a light bulb that goes on. There is an awareness that's given. And then you know, you couple that with a prophetic word that God gives where that, where that word hits like, you know, an arrow right in the target of your heart. And you're thinking, man, first of all, that illumination of the word of God was absolutely overwhelming. My mind is blown. My mind's blown. And you're in that spot where it's like, God, thank you. Like that was just wild. You walk out and you know what happens? You are encouraged. You are encouraged to, to study the word yourself. You know, when the teacher's teaching, it's not like you, you have this margin created between you and the word of God where, where you come away thinking, man, that was just so deep and so powerful. I could never get that. I might as well just close the book, you know, and just come on Sundays and listen to this person. That's not the gift of teaching. The gift of teaching is so profound and yet so personal that when you hear it, you're inspired. You're inspired to go to the book yourself and open up the word of God and feed more because you've discovered God. I just want to say this is one thing I'm so thankful for in the Calvary Chapel movement has been the teaching of God's word, right? The teaching of God's word founded upon the book. That consistency, that consistent reliability. I will say this, you know, sometimes what happens is we can be so focused on it that we kind of take ape, apostle, prophet, evangelist. We take ape and we ignore ape, right? It, we, we just ignore that apostolic, prophetic, evangelistic gifting within the body of Christ. But I am so thankful that we've rooted ourselves to the word of God and it's not just about having a, a reputation. It's about really seeing people, believers in Jesus Christ, not only loving the scriptures and not just being full of head knowledge because you know what? If you've got a, a head that's full of the knowledge of God's word but you're not applying it to your life, not only is that worse than zero, right? Not only is it worse than zero, but one day you'll stand before God and he'll say, what'd you do with what I gave you? What, because to whom much is given, much is required. 
And so we'll actually stand before God and God's going to be like, hey, hey, listen, girl, I dropped all this revelation in your lap. Like I dropped all this revelation in your lap. let's, Let's just go through the history here. Look how many times I illuminated your understanding. Look how many times I spoke to you and I placed that truth right in the palm of your hand. Now what did you do with it? Right? What did you do with it? Because knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And, and what the Apostle Paul is saying there is this. If we're just people who have a lot of knowledge about God, we're nothing better than clanging symbols. if we have not love. And love for God and love for people, that's where we are metabolizing God's word and applying it to our lives. That's what compels us, right? That's what compels us in the intersection of temptation, where it's like you've got a choice and you know what the word says, but it's your love for God. God, I'm going to choose the right thing. I'm going to make the application. I'm going to, I'm going to do what's right. I'm going to think what's right. I'm going to say what's right because, God, I love you, and I love the people in my life, and I know the option, the opportunity that I have that's set before me here is to do or say or think the wrong thing, and all that's going to do is cause chaos, and so because of love, God, I'm going to take your word and I'm going to apply it to my life. And no matter what comes, hell or high water, acceptance or rejection, you know, it doesn't matter because you know when you're obedient to God's words, sometimes you get accepted for it and sometimes you get rejected. Sometimes you get accepted, sometimes you get rejected. Sometimes when you're obedient to the word of God, the situation doesn't get better, it gets worse, right? And then you're you're like on the other side of that and you're thinking, what the heck is this all about? I thought it would get better. Isn't that the way that it works? Well, not for Jesus. You know what I'm saying? I mean, his obedience to the Father led to the cross. And why would we think, right, church? Why would we think? Because you know we, we marinate in this culture that's like got this view of God that's so skewed. I was doing a devotional today on Joseph, and, and the Bible says while he's in prison, that God was with him and the steadfast love of God gave him favor with the prisoner, with, 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 the, with, the, with the leader of the prison. And you think, you just think, wait a minute, the steadfast love of God gave him favor with the guy who was running the prison? How about the steadfast love of God get him out of prison? You know what I'm saying? How about when we're walking with God, doesn't that mean that we're going to be insulated from adversity? Doesn't that mean that we're not going to have struggle or trial in our life? And you know and I know the way that we respond theologically is right, but feeling-wise, emotion-wise, emotion-wise, like if we really felt that way, we would never be in a place where we would say, God, if you loved me, right, God, if you really love me, then why am I in this spot? Why am I in this situation? And yet what we see is in the midst of the adversity and difficulty, the steadfast love of God for Joseph never changed. It never changed. And you know what Joseph didn't know? I don't mean to get off on a track here, but what Joseph didn't know is his trajectory 
started with rejection from his brothers, getting tossed in, in prison. It was going to end up all the way over in saving Israel and his family and the nation of Egypt. And he didn't know it right. He had no idea. And this was what God was able to do because God didn't throw him in prison and God didn't falsely accuse him. You know, God wasn't moving Potiphar's wife to falsely accuse him. God was taking the evil of people and turning it for good. Because that's what God is able to do. And that's where we either choose to trust in the sovereignty of God and lean into the fact that in the midst of it, his presence is still with us and his steadfast love never fails us. Or we allow ourselves. Or we allow ourselves, right? And I'm saying like the value of the teaching of God's word and the body of Christ is we gather together here or maybe we're in a life group or maybe we're just at Starbucks, you know, and we're with a brother or sister that has that beautiful gifting on their life. And they're downloading the word of God to us and we're built up and our, our understanding's illuminated and we're a hunger to study God's word is developed within us. That's what I'm talking about when it comes to the gift of teaching. The teacher is one who understands and explains a communicator of God's truth and wisdom. They help others remain biblically grounded to better discern God's will, guiding others towards wisdom, helping the community remain faithful to Christ's word and constructing a transferable doctrine. They ensure the truths of scripture are passed along from generation to generation. Their ministry could be said to be primarily instructional, but when I say that, don't think it's any less powerful in nature. The gift of teaching is powerful. These people are gifted to teach the word of God, not humanism or philosophy or mathematics or don't mistake this. And there are people that are able to teach, you know, those different subjects in amazing ways. We're talking about a spiritual gift to teach God's word. These people in their immaturity can be they can be exacting. They can be obsessed with accuracy. Um, with the ability to collect vast amounts of information and systematize it, they can be rigid in areas with little practical experience. Their knowledge can be valued over wisdom. The teacher can value their relationship with information over their relationship with people. In their hunt for clarity, they can offend people with their bluntness and lack empathy. Teachers are prone to become zealous, setting up certain knowledge and behavior requirements as a litmus test for being a serious Christian. They can speak in black and white terms that have a hard edge to them because they connect with information. They tend to think right thinking fixes people rather than, than being present with people. And so that's the fivefold gifting in Ephesians chapter 4.